Maybe Sabrina Marie, host of the Building Abundant Success Series. Our spotlight is on Veterans Affairs. In the 30th anniversary of the ADA, we're looking at how the ADA has impacted the lives of people with disabilities. My guest is Ron Drock. He's had over 50 years of experience, personal experience. He's a Vietnam veteran who retired from the military in the late 1960s with a Purple Heart. And he's focused his life on helping his fellow disabled veterans. He served with the U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs and the Disabled American Veterans. And from there, he has gone on to many governmental posts as a consultant. He has also worked to make lives better for disabled veterans by giving his input on employment issues with the Departments of Defense, Labor, and Veterans Affairs, and also been appointed by Secretary Gates to the Department of Defense, as well as the President's Committee on Employment of Persons with Disabilities. Ron and I talk about what kind of laws have been passed over the last 75 years that have helped veterans and how the ADA has impacted veterans. This great interview with Ron Drog and I are coming at you right now. Okay, I wanted to talk to you, um, not only uh, having military experience and, and uh, knowing about uh, a lot of the issues that our American veterans and veterans go through, period. I thought it would be interesting to hear about your life story and really what you see, not only in the um, 30th year of the ADA, but um, my father being a veteran, my uncle being a veteran, what are you seeing um, as a veteran? And really, start with your life. How did you uh, get into what you're doing? And uh, let us know a little bit about your background. Okay, yeah. I um, Well, let's go back to when I got drafted. I, got, I was working in the steel mill in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, when I got drafted in uh, July of um, 1965. And I uh, got went into the military in August of 65. Uh, spent some time. Uh, my first uh, basic training was at Fort Gordon, Georgia, and then I uh, went up to uh, Fort Dix, New Jersey, for advanced training. And then I got assigned to the finance department for a while, uh, and then I got transferred to the unit that I went to Vietnam with, the 196th Light Infantry Brigade. Um, right from they were in, they were training up in uh, right outside of Boston at Fort Devens, and um, so anyway we the whole brigade uh, ended up going to Vietnam. We left out of um, we left out of Boston Harbor by naval transport uh, ship uh, in June of '65, and I'm sorry, yeah, June of '65, and. Um, I got that backwards. I must have got drafted in 64. Uh, anyway, uh, we went to Vietnam in 65, and uh, I got wounded in May of 60. Okay, I got my dates mixed up. I'm so sorry. 66. Okay. I got wounded in May of I got wounded in May of 67. Uh, lost a leg in, in combat as a result of combat wounds. And um, anyway, I came back. Uh, went to Walter Reed, got uh, medically stabilized, uh, had my first amputation below the below the knee uh, at Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. And then when I got to Walter Reed, I had gangrene set in, so they amputated the leg above the knee. Uh, 
and then I got uh, medically discharged uh, in November of '67. Um, I was still uh, was still convalescing, still had some open wounds, and then um, I finally got my new prosthesis. And then uh, as I was leaving the VA hospital after learning how to walk with my new prosthesis, um, someone from the VA stopped me. Uh, as I was walking out and asked me if I was interested in working for the VA. And I asked uh, asked them, you know, doing what? And they said, uh, helping other disabled veterans coming back from Vietnam. So I said, sure, fine, I'd like to try it and see what happens. So anyway, I, I went to work for the VA in February of 68 and uh, worked there for about two and a half years uh, dealing with returning uh, Vietnam veterans uh, that were coming back into Pittsburgh. This is where I was uh, born and raised, and uh, that's where I was working at the VA at the Pittsburgh hey, regional I wanted office. To ask something. I wanted to ask you something really quick, and I know my my listeners are are, are kind of going to be curious about this. You're talking about the '60s. You're talking about whole two or three generations that don't know what the draft was, don't know what the 60s was. So when you talk about what happened from 64 to 68, um, being a young man in the mid-60s, um, was it your aspiration to go into the military, number one? And number two, that's a lot to take in in such a short period of three and a half years. Well, when I came, go ahead. Yeah, what's going through your mind? Did, did you want to go into the military? And what was the climate like at that time? Because we wouldn't know, those of us who weren't born uh, during the Vietnam uh, era, there was a draft. Nobody would know what that is anymore. Um, what was that like? Well, there was a lot of protesting going on, but not in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh was a, a blue, pretty much a blue-collar town at that time, fairly patriotic. There wasn't any real, I, at least I didn't see any any protests or anything. And again, we're talking 66. Now, when I came back in, in 67, 68 time frame, uh, there was a lot of protests going on. We had uh, uh, the Kent State situation uh, you had a lot of that going on. Um, I was very, very fortunate in that I got, well, first of all, I got drafted. I didn't enlist. And so I, it wasn't that I didn't want to go. It's just that I wasn't going to volunteer to go. Um, so when I got drafted, I said, well, you know, it is what it is. And uh, when I came back wounded, I had, uh, I was a little, I was very, very nervous because I didn't know what I was going to do. I was a high school graduate worked in a steel mill, didn't have any real skills to speak of, uh, and I never, there was not any people with disabilities as role models back in the 60s. I never knew a disabled person, uh, never saw a disabled person to speak of. Um, so I just had no vision at all as to what I was going to do. Uh, fortunately, I had a very supportive family, a lot of supportive friends, neighbors, uh, I, I had no problem transitioning back uh, into civilian life. Um, a good friend of mine uh, taught me how to walk on crutches because the, the, the Walter Reed needed the bed. They sent me home uh, July 3rd 
uh, so I could be home for the 4th of July. Um, and a friend of mine taught me how to walk on crutches because uh, Walter Reed did not. Another friend of mine taught me how to drive with my left foot, and I still drive today with my left foot. Uh, so I had a lot of support. My family obviously, you know, took good care of me. I was living at home. I was single, um, and I, you know, started getting back into into the swing of things. And I I shied away from watching the news because everything on the news, Walter Cronkite was, um, you know, reporting on what was going on in Vietnam. The Tet Offensive came up in '68. Uh, and these are things that I just didn't want to hear about uh, or see uh, on the news. So I, I wasn't, I wasn't really, I wasn't withdrawn. I was just not watching the news. I was going about my life. I was uh, going out. I was dating. Uh, so life was, life was pretty good. Hmm. Okay. Well, that gives us a, a picture of what's going on. So when you were saying that. Um, you were dealing with veterans affairs and someone asked you, did you want to work? Um, I guess that might have been something new they were creating or were they expanding helping veterans get back into society at that time? Well, you know, uh, back in the 60s and into at least the mid to late 70s, uh, there was a stigma attached to the Vietnam generation, uh, the, well, the veterans. Yeah, that we were drug users, we were baby killers, you know, we were uh, war criminals, and all this uh, bad stuff associated. Uh, veterans were delivering or coming back with post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, at that time, PTSD was very, very, very little was known about it. There were a few psychologists, including a couple who were Vietnam veterans, um, who were pushing the government to do something about treatment for PTSD, and everybody sort of just shoved it aside, ignored it, uh, didn't want to deal with it, didn't know how to deal with it. Um, so that went on for for quite a while. Uh, so a lot of veterans, you know, coming back were not welcome back. Um, you know, I, I, like I said myself, I, I had no problem at all. Uh, but a lot of other veterans came back to a hostile environment, uh, they couldn't go back home for whatever reason, or they didn't want to go back home. Some of them uh, that were that were really um, living with PTSD had a real hard time adjusting. Turned to alcohol, turned to drugs. And uh, speaking of alcohol and drugs, drugs were very easy to get in Vietnam. Um, uh, more so when we first got there, drugs were easier to get than beer. Um, but it was fairly uh, mainly marijuana. Uh, but mostly, uh, when they came, when the veterans came back, uh, they had a trouble readjusting. Employers didn't want to employ them. Um, the economy was so so back at that time. I don't remember all the details, but Vietnam veterans were having a real hard time getting employment, and part of it was due to the stigma of uh, veterans having post-traumatic stress disorder and uh, were walking time bombs. Uh, you know, there was incidents. Um, in the, uh, I guess it was in the mid to late 70s where a Vietnam veteran working for the Postal Service um, went off the end, off the deep end and uh, murdered some fellow workers and uh, the term became popular as going postal if you have an outbreak uh, or an outburst at work 
the tag was UN Postal. And if you look back at some of the TV shows back then, like Streets of San Francisco and uh, I can't remember some of the other ones, but the bad guy was always a Vietnam vet who came back, couldn't wow. adjust, turned and turned to crime, uh, which was just a stereotype. It just wasn't true. Wow. Wow. And, you know, because that's, that's a question I was going to ask, the stigma that uh, people... Uh, young young uh, veterans came back uh, to in 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 their own country. <laughs> uh, that that's amazing, and and I and I believe it. You know, it, it, that's just amazing. Did that stigma pass, or do you still believe that veterans of that era are going through that? Well, you know, it's also interesting because back then, this is you know. 20, 20, 25 years before the ADA, veterans had mm-hmm. no legal protections. They weren't covered under the Civil Rights Act of 64, uh, 65. Uh, they didn't have any uh, any rights as a uh, citizen per se. Um, so while, there, while the Civil Rights was uh, being implemented, it protected all kinds of classes, but veterans as a class were never included in the Civil Rights Act. So, ironically, veterans who defended the Constitution and defended the country uh, had no defense against discrimination. And employers, up until probably the mid-'70s, were not at all shy about just flat-out denying veterans employment because of their veteran status. You're a Vietnam veteran. You're going to go postal. uh, We're not going to hire you. We're afraid of you. We don't know how to deal with you. All those kinds of things were going on until 1972, the Vietnam Era Veterans Readjustment Assistance Act was passed, and it didn't really provide any protections, but it provided affirmative action and required uh, federal contractors to take affirmative action to employ and advance in employment qualified Vietnam veterans and disabled veterans. But back then again, very little was known about disability employment. So veterans with disabilities had a hard time because employers didn't know how to make workplace accommodations back then. There was not a lot of technology that helped uh, severely disabled veterans. So a lot of them just uh, ended up going on 100% disability from the VA, getting Social Security disability benefits, and uh, never going back to work because of the discrimination that was going on. Uh, I'm a, personally, I'm a firm believer that there's nobody who has a disability that is so severe that they can't work. And you look at somebody like Stephen Hawking, um, you know, here's a guy, mm-hmm. how much more disabled can you get? And uh, one of them, of course, he was a brilliant mind, but he also had the wherewithal to go out there and work. So I, I honestly right. believe that regardless of the severity there's a job out there for you. You just need to find the right job. You need to find the right accommodations if needed. You need to find the right support system, and you need to go out there and go to work. I agree. It gives you a purpose in life. The average age of a person going to Vietnam, they say, was about 19, 18, 19 years old. And, uh, you know, when you think about people coming back from uh, their time over there, 
and they're young adults. We're not talking about someone who's had a long time, necessarily, uh, most majority long time military experience, um, but the majority were very young people. Did they ever track, um, say, somebody over there four or six years more, and like yourself, you're over there only two, did they ever track the majority of the people in the United States who went to Vietnam and came back and didn't work? Uh, you know, that's a big workforce. Or, you know, that, that, that's, a, that's a major big number of people um, for the ones who came back um, to the States. Did they ever track that? Because we're talking about young men when they're coming back, most of them. That's a very interesting question. Um, there's, there, there's ne there was never any real longitudinal studies done on, uh, on any cohort of Vietnam veterans, whether they be disabled, minority, um, you know, rural, you know, wherever they're draftees versus enlistees. So there was never any anything really done. They started collecting unemployment data uh, probably, I'm going to guess, in the late 70s when they started collecting unemployment uh, data and reporting it on a monthly basis. And that was just the, um, um, you know, just the, the basic unemployment, you know, who's looking for employment, uh, who's employed, that kind of, that kind of data. And sometime in the... Again, I'm having a little bit of trouble with dates, but probably in the mid-'70s, the Human Resource Research Organization, known as HUMRO, H-U-M-M-R-O, did a study, and it just came back to me when you asked that question. Uh, they did a study, and I'm quite honestly, I don't remember all the details of it, and I don't know if it's even available anymore online. You might be able to find it by Googling it, but I'm not sure. And it was the first uh, study that was done about the status of Vietnam veterans. And I'm not sure what all it covered, but it was really, I think, a groundbreaking study that helped shape uh, the, the policies and legislation going forward. Uh, because there was a lot of legislation that came about uh, in the 70s and the 80s to help Vietnam veterans uh, in their readjustment as well as uh, employment. Wow. And you say that the there was that study. From your experience, we're, we're dealing with the mid-70s, late 70s, um, what's going on in helping um you know, veterans, women and men, get back into society. Uh, what's happening legislatively? Because you said the the laws that were passed at that time didn't completely help, but they, they were, were a beginning. What legislatively in the 70s, if anything, helped? Well, I think, I think the first thing that, that helped that got things started was Public Law 92-540, uh, which established quite a few programs and uh, initiatives to help veterans returning to, to get back to employment. And then uh, the Vietnam Veterans Reassist Readjustment Assistance Act in 1973, which required affirmative action. Now, 
Public Law um, 93508, which I just mentioned, was passed right around the same time as Public Law 93112, which gave us Section 501 and 503 and 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, which was Public Law 93112. So there was some similar, there were some parallel tracks going on uh, to help people with disabilities in employment as well as helping veterans. Uh, again, the um, the Rehabilitation Act did not prohibit discrimination but called for affirmative action. It did provide some protection in federal grants under Section 504 uh, protected against discrimination, but Section 501 applied to the federal government, and there was a similar provision in the Vietnam Veterans Act uh, for federal employment for veterans in addition to basic veterans' preference calling for affirmative action. And then uh, there was that, that was 93508 and Public Law 93112. I forget the exact dates, but they were passed fairly, fairly similar, fairly close together and had a lot of similar provisions, one for people with disabilities and one for, for Vietnam veterans. And then uh, later on, there was the uh, Comprehensive Employment Training Act uh, under President Carter, um, which established three programs, three initiatives. Well, actually, the law didn't, but uh, the president, President Carter, initiated three projects in response. I, I don't know if, if you have ever heard this. One of the first things that uh, President Carter did uh, when he was elected when he was sworn into office, I believe it was the first day uh, he was president, he uh, announced amnesty for Vietnam uh, draft dodgers and draft evaders uh, and those that fled the country announced amnesty. So my personal feeling is that these initiatives to help Vietnam veterans was in part at least a response to the criticism that he was receiving for uh, the amnesty issue. Uh, so there was three, three programs. CETA was the Comprehensive Employment and Training Act, which was an employment initiative to help boost the economy. It wasn't, it wasn't targeted specifically to any uh, particular target group except the underemployed, the under uh, those that needed training, so forth and so on. Um, the president initiated uh, three three initiatives, as I mentioned. One was um, some uh, some uh, priority for Vietnam veterans in CETA. The other was they established what became known as the President's Committee on Hire, H-I-R-E, Help Through Industry Retraining and Employment. And the third one is escaping me. It may come back to me as we're talking. So those, those helped make a, de a dent. And then uh, later on in the 80s, uh, when President Reagan came in, uh, Tom Palkin uh, was the head of the, the uh, Peace Corps. I'm sorry, Action. And he initiated a project around the country where they established uh, community outreach centers that was funded, they were funded by the federal government through action, uh, and he did that throughout the country. And when they did it, they, they announced that there was going to be funding for a set period of time, two years, three years, I forget which. 
And at that time, when the funding was expired, these programs were either going to need to be self-sufficient or they'd go out of business. Um, well, when the when the time came up, uh, Mr. Palkin and the administration started getting a lot of criticism because they were no longer going to fund the program. And the, the Mr. Palkin came out and said, well, you know, we announced this on day one, and these organizations did nothing to become self-sufficient. You know, we're sorry. So several, several uh, continued. Several did heed the warning, and they did do the uh, the uh, the self-funding. They found uh, alternative sources for funding and resources, and uh, continued on. I think at least one or two are still functioning today. Uh, well, actually, one is in Pittsburgh. The uh, I forget it, it, they just changed their name. It was the Vietnam Veterans Outreach Center and then they changed it to the Veterans Outreach Center. And there's several around the country that sort of spawned off of the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the project that Mr. Palkin initiated in 1980 or 81. And then another thing that happened when I was working at Disabled American Veterans in terms of the post-traumatic stress disorder, a uh, professor from the University of Cleveland uh, approached the DAV and said that he had uh, two students who, uh, I forget what he was teaching, but anyway, he had two students that every time uh, the subject of Vietnam came up during the class, these two guys would get up and walk out. And the, and the professor, you know, didn't think too, too much of it, was just wondered. So he ran into them in the hallway one day, and he asked them, you know, what was going on. Bottom line was, they were they were living with post traumatic stress disorder. <coughs> Excuse me. So Doctor wow. Wilson, John Wilson, who's now uh, passed on, he died about two years ago. Uh, he approached DAV with a proposal uh, to fund a study, and the DAV funded the study, and uh, it was it was released. It was uh, titled the Forgotten Warrior Project, and it talked all about uh, Vietnam veterans and post traumatic stress and what was going on and how it was being ignored. Well, that led DAV to initiate a, uh, a veteran outreach storefront program. Uh, and actually, I was put in charge of, to set it up. And we established seven pilot projects around the country. <coughs> Excuse me. We did the pilot projects. And we set them up all volunteers. We didn't have we didn't have any government money. We didn't have a, any real budget for it. We found office space that was donated. Well, we 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 manned it ourselves. We staffed it, but we got volunteers in the community. We got psychologists. We got psychiatrists. We got lawyers, all volunteering their help to assist these Vietnam veterans that were living with PTSD. Uh, readjust and get back into society. That model ended up being the template for what the VA now has in their veteran outreach centers. Uh, they're out in the they're out in the community. They're not in the VA hospital. They're not in VA facilities. They're out there in the community. So that was mm -hmm. something that I was very involved in and very proud of in terms of something that I contributed over over my career. Awesome. Awesome. In the 80s, um, I, I, I had uh, studied up on not only the ADA, 
Um, but um, how it took 15 years just to perfect some of the laws and then through the 90s and thousands, has the ADA helped uh, veterans, do you, do you believe? Well, you know, uh, veterans are not identified as a class in the ADA, and, 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 and that's, that's right. fine. Um, I uh -huh. attempted to get them identified in the regulations that EEOC uh, put out because by, by virtue of the definition has a history of a disability, veterans with disabilities at a minimum have the history. So I lobbied, if you will, EEOC for a number of months, and uh, I lost that battle. EEOC said that every individual still must uh, show that, you know, they meet the criteria and the definition. Uh, so, again, it helped open the door uh, for veterans with disabilities to gain uh, at protections and access. Uh, and I, I don't know that EEOC or anybody is tracking the number of disabled veterans that have filed complaints under ADA. But I think the whole attitude of people, you know, employment and other protections for people with disabilities spun off onto the disabled, the disabled veteran population. And then you had, you know, Gulf War One um, in the early 90s, uh, which kind of changed the country's attitudes toward veterans in general. And uh, when, of course, 9-11 came about, uh, the, 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 the mantra basically was, we're not going to treat this generation the same as we treated the generation from Vietnam. And a lot of Vietnam veterans uh, that I know have been involved in that, in that leadership in trying to make you know, the transition and life a lot more uh, livable for veterans from this generation. So anyway, the, the ADA has opened up so many opportunities in so many ways for people with disabilities and um, obviously by extension, the veterans with disabilities. Um, the attitude and the, and the um, temperature, if you will, uh, of, the, uh, of the employers right now and has been probably at least since 2005, uh, maybe a little bit earlier than that, that employers are really sincere and very uh, assertive in reaching out, trying to find veterans of this generation, OIF and OEF veterans, uh, disabilities and not disabilities. Some have actually set up specific programs. Uh, for example, Northrop Grumman has a program called Operation Impact. And while it's a small program, it's focused on veterans with traumatic brain injury and, tra and post-traumatic stress disorder. And they've hired these veterans with accommodations and worked with them to make sure that they had all the accommodations and all the supportive services uh, that they need to be successful. And it's been a small but successful program. And it's kind of poignant to when uh, people are talking about, uh, you know, model programs. A lot of your larger federal contractors, particularly defense contractors, also have had um, initiatives to reach out to veterans. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm working on a project right now with a company out of Atlanta that is working on helping veterans with security clearances get employment. Uh, there's a big demand by federal contractors and other employers 
to hire veterans with security clearances in part because it's hard to get a security clearance now. I think it takes up to a year once you apply for it if you don't have it. So a lot of these veterans are coming out and have been coming out with high skill levels, but also the security clearance. Um, so they're in, they're in big demand right now. The demand is, is, uh, is larger than the supply. So what we're working on with this company is trying to identify more veterans being discharged with security clearances and try to get them into the queue, uh, knowing that there's a place for them to go to get help with employment. And the service is free to the veteran. Uh, the veteran doesn't have to pay for any services, uh, but they get leads on uh, employers that are seeking veterans with their particular skill sets. Awesome. What do you see for the future? You were um, in working with federal agencies and whatnot when um, the first George Bush, uh, you know, um, had that signed into law, and I believe I think Clinton had to sign that right into law. And you were part of the President's Committee on Employment with Persons with Disabilities. From then to now, through several other presidents, do you believe that um, uh, we've come? A long way, and how far uh, do you think that we should have come if we don't think that we've, you know, uh, I guess advanced as much as we should have? Yeah, I don't think there's any question that we've come a long, long way, um, both for disabled veterans, veterans in general. Uh, their unemployment rate, for example, is the lowest it's, it's it's ever been since they tracked it, started tracking it, both for veterans and for um, uh, disabled veterans, unlike the population of people with disabilities where you still have only about one-third that are actually in the labor force, and of that one-third that's in the labor force, they have a very high percentage of unemployment. I think it's it's around 16 or 17 percent. Um, so uh, I think, again, the veterans have come a long way in part, I think in large part, attributable to the attitude of employers and society in general that even though we may disagree with anything that was done in Afghanistan or Iraq, and of course we're still in Afghanistan, uh, that we're not going to treat veterans the same as we treated Vietnam veterans when they came back. Uh, you know, this is an all-volunteer military. Uh, you know, they didn't get drafted. Uh, they, they didn't do what they did uh, because they were told to. They did because they wanted to. Uh, they volunteered. And of course, the repetitive uh, deployments is not necessarily something that they wanted to do. But the whole the attitude of the whole country is is so much more receptive to this generation. And uh, number one, as, as somebody who lived through through both, uh, I'm very very pleased that these uh, young men, and, and some of them are a lot lot older than you know, the average age of Vietnam. The average age of Vietnam was 18, and I think the average age for OIF and OEF is something like 26. So there's a big difference in the age, in the age uh, gap. And, uh, and when you look at the Vietnam generation, again, going back to the average age, and uh, one of the psychologists that I dealt with, and I'll never forget this, um, I can't remember exactly who it was. I think I know who it was. But he basically said, you know, 
what what do we do with these young men and women, mostly men at the time, coming back who at age 18, age 19, who have been taught all their lives to respect one another, to respect life, uh, et cetera, et cetera, and then go to Vietnam and be told it's okay to kill someone. And, you know, when you think about that, 18 years old, think back to when you were 18 years old and you got this conflicting message um, about, hey, I was born and raised and, you know, my religion, et cetera, et cetera, and now you're telling me it's okay to take somebody's life? Uh, how do you deal with that? Wow. Wow. Uh, that, that that is that is amazing, amazing. What do you see for yourself at, for the future? You are a consultant now, um, and what is your website where people might be able to, you know, uh, be in touch with you? My life is great. Uh, I'm 75 years old, uh, married. Uh, there for I just last July celebrated my 50th wedding anniversary got two adult daughters. I've got two young grandchildren, one 12 and one 6, that we just absolutely adore and love. Uh, I'm still doing some volunteer work in the disability community and the veterans community. Uh, I'm doing a little bit of consulting work. Um, I'm uh, I'm living the life, you know, living the dream. I'm having a good time. I'm enjoying stuff. My health is relatively good. I've got, you know, old man diseases. I got diabetes and um, I pretty much lost my hearing. Uh, I've got high cholesterol, high blood pressure. Uh, but, you know, life is good. I get up this side and of the earth every morning and uh, move about and I try to keep busy, try to keep my mind active. Um, so I, 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 when I, when I, my wife wants me to totally retire, um, I'm not sure that I'll ever do that. Uh, uh, I may stop doing consulting at some time, but right now, uh, and I'm not aggressively looking for consulting opportunities, but uh, if they come up, uh, you know, I'm certainly going to consider them. And uh, the last two jobs, well, the two jobs I have right now uh, were through contacts that I had who came to me. I didn't seek them out. Uh, so I've been very, very fortunate in my post-retirement consulting years. Awesome. Thanks so much for being with us. I really appreciate it. And we have you at conceptcommunications.com if people want to be in touch with you. I thank you so much for being with me. Thank you so much. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Have a good day. Thank you. You too.